Okay, uh, we're going to open with a word of prayer. Our Father, we're thankful again tonight for the gift of infallible, inerrant, authoritative Scripture that we can come at this point in time and connect with the text of your Word uh, just as the Church has done over the many centuries. We thank you that the Holy Spirit has seen fit to preserve this text, that through it we may come to faith and that believing we can be saved. And not only can we be saved, but we can grow in Christ. For it's in His name we give these thanks. Amen. Tonight we're going to go back just a little bit and uh, review a little bit on the uh, position, uh, positional truth. And um, we, we want to go back and um, to page 72 because, remember, we are trying to approach this by using the Trinity. Uh, we go from the Holy... We're going backwards through the Trinity, uh, from the Holy Spirit back to the Son, and then in the handout tonight, we start with the Father. And the, whole here, the issue here is to define the unique features of the church age that are not the same as in other ages, not the same as Israel, and so on. So, the Holy Spirit, the, we covered the things that the Holy Spirit has done. These are only a sampling. Um, the Holy Spirit regenerates, He indwells, He baptizes, He seals, <clears throat> He makes intercession, and He gives spiritual gifts. But all that, that work of the Holy Spirit to do these things, that actually flows out of the work of the Son. So, the work of the Holy Spirit, if you can look upon it this way, He implements the content of the work that the Son does. So, right now we're at the second person, and the analogy that you can use to think Trinitarianly, if there's an adverb like that, um, is that the Father is the speaker, the Son is the message, and the Holy Spirit is the effect of the message or the implementation of the message. So we really have approached this kind of backwards because we started with the implementation of God's program for the church age. And the Holy Spirit is the on-scene commander. He is the one who is on planet Earth. That's his locale. I mean, he's omnipresent, obviously. But... His, his place of operations is this planet, this earth, which is pretty flattering that he has seen fit, just like the Lord Jesus Christ is, during the period of his incarnation uh, saw fit to visit this planet. Right now, the Holy Spirit's center of operation is the church. And the church is not a building. The church is not an organization. The church is the set of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so, we've come now to the sun, and we wanted to look at certain things. And there's, there's some aspects here. I, I was going fast last week, and I didn't. I realized afterwards I didn't point some things out. <clears throat> One of them was the fact that when we get talking about the righteousness that Jesus Christ is uh, that is imputed to our account that comes from Jesus, <clears throat> there. This is the heart of the Reformation, <clears throat> and I want to read a section. Uh, of a book on the... It's called Justification by Faith Alone. And it's actually a, a little paperback version of, 
some of the writings of America's most outstanding conservative theologian of the 19th century, Charles Hodge. <clears throat> and Charles Hodge was an eloquent spokesman for the conservative evangelical uh, theologians at the time in this country when liberalism was really coming in toward the 1880s, 1890s, 1900, that whole period of time. It was really a theological devastation that hit this country at that, that point. And it was men like Charles Hodge, who taught many years at Princeton, who was part of the old guard trying to hold on. Anyway, he wrote a lot on this issue of imputed righteousness. And uh, into the introduction of this is uh, Dr. Robert Raymond, who, who writes this. And I mention this not because I want to stir up some uh, religious controversy, but because I think it, we need to understand this. Last week, I mentioned that Roman Catholics and Protestants do not agree on this righteousness issue. The problem is that thinking is so shallow and sloppy on both the Protestant and Catholic sides of the fence, because our whole culture thinks sloppily, is that we can't even articulate the difference. And people don't see the difference. So you have to think, out, well, wait a minute, if there's no difference, why do we have a Reformation? Something was different. It split Europe right across the middle. So what was going on? What was the distinction? Obviously, Protestants and Catholics agree on the person of Jesus Christ. They agree that he's God and he's man. They agree to the fact that the apostles founded the church. Uh, they agree that the scriptures are uh, the, the inerrant word of God, or they did agree at that point. But here's, here's what they disagreed about. And let me just read a section of this. Very concise statement of the difference. This is why there was a Reformation. The word alone, after the word faith, he's talking here about the statement, justified by faith alone. The word alone, after the word faith, in the statement's proposition on justification is thundering by its absence. He's talking about the, the coalescence of Protestants and, and, uh, and Catholics today. Um, he says, the um, whole controversy in the 16th century, Reformation, 16th century, the whole controversy in the 16th century in this doctrinal area turned on whether sinners were justified by faith alone, sola fide, or by faith and good works, which earned merit before God. The Protestant reformers, following Paul's teaching on justification in Romans and Galatians, affirmed the former and denied the latter. Rome denied the former and affirmed the latter. The Protestant reformers, again following Paul and his argument in Galatians, maintain that the path the sinner follows here leads either to heaven or to hell. The Protestant reformers clearly saw, over against Rome's doctrine of salvation, which was and still is essential to the maintenance of its priestcraft and thus its economic fortunes, one, that saving faith is to be directed. Now, here's a set of statements, and I'm going to read through these. These are eloquent uh, statements of the difference 
between these two points of view. And I think after I get through about five or six of these statements, you'll see what the difference is. Saving faith is to be directed to the doing and dying of Christ alone and not to the good works or inner experience of the believer. Now let's run that by again slowly. Saving faith is to be directed to the doing and dying of Christ alone and not to the good works or inner experience of the believer. Now where does that put the focus? You see the difference in focus? One is focusing on Jesus Christ's finished work. The other is focusing on my spiritual life as a method of justification. Two, that the Christian's righteousness before God is in heaven at the right hand of God in Jesus Christ and not on earth within the believer. Not on earth within the believer. Again, the Christian's righteousness before God is in heaven at the right hand of God in Christ Jesus and not on earth within the believer. Big difference. If the first statement concentrated on the person of Christ over against the believer, the second statement concentrates on the location difference. One locates it in heaven, the other one locates it on earth. Big difference. Third statement. That the ground of our justification is the vicarious work of Christ for us. Preposition. F-O-R. The work of Christ for us. Not the gracious work of the Spirit in us. Let me say that again. The ground of our justification is the vicarious work of Christ for us and not the gracious work of the Spirit in us. See again, see the difference. Four, that the faith righteousness of justification is not personal but vicarious. That is, the righteousness doesn't come out of even the Spirit's work in our hearts. That is righteous. That's a righteous work. But it's not perfect because we're incomplete. Imperfect. So that can't be the basis of the righteousness. The righteousness is that which is given to us. It is not personal, not our person, but it's vicarious. It's someone else's on our behalf. It is not infused but imputed. And by that is the word meaning, infused means God puts it into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's infused righteousness. Now the Protestants didn't deny there was infused right. Nobody's denying that there's infused righteousness. That's the new nature. It's just that the Protestants said that's not the basis of salvation. That's a fruit. That's an effect of, not a cause of. So it's not infused, but imputed. Not experiential, but judicial. Now this is a hard statement. But the righteousness that justifies is not an experiential righteousness, as far as our experience. It's experiential as far as Jesus, but not us. 
it is judicial in the sense that the father judicially applies it to our account. That's imputed. Uh, it is not our righteousness, but it's a righteousness alien to us. That is, it comes from outside of us. It is not earned, but it's graciously given. So I think that's a pretty uh, thorough set of statements. And so that's why this becomes important. The content of this little thing right here is the heart of what God has done for the church of Jesus Christ. And once once we glimpse that, that is what gives a security because it's a legal standing. It doesn't matter how you feel now. It's not a result of your feeling. It's not a result of whether you, you know, this is a bad day and boy, I feel sick and I feel like I got eight versions of the flu or something like that. It's not, it's not anything like that. It's the legal standing. It is not feelings. So, since it's not feelings, then it's not made vulnerable by how I feel. It's not made vulnerable by how many sins I've committed. Doesn't the number God knew that we were stinkers before He imputed us the righteousness to us. So I'm not going to surprise Him because we pull a couple of boners. That that doesn't surprise Him. The, the righteousness is imputed and credited. Okay, so. Now, we come down to the, uh, page 73, um, down the last paragraph, where I'm trying there, in that last paragraph, I'm just trying to distinguish what characterizes believers in the church age, with regard to justification by faith, and believers in previous dispensations, with regard to uh, absolute righteousness. And so that's why that paragraph says, the missing righteousness appears in the life of Christ recorded in the Gospels. Christ solved the mystery. Justification of sinful human beings could occur if somehow Christ's righteousness could be credited or imputed to their account. Okay, down the next the last sentence, or the three last sentences of the paragraph. The church, unlike believers in previous dispensations, knows the historic basis of its justification in clear fashion. It has less excuse to drift into various legalisms that seek to exalt human works. See what I'm saying there? In the Old Testament, all they had was a promise that somehow God is going to solve the problem of salvation. But they, had, they didn't have a clue about how this was going to happen. Actually, they had more faith than we do, in a sense, because... Everything was yet to come. It was all promised. But we can look back on history that's already occurred. That righteousness has now historically been earned. It's been generated. And that's why we can have that confidence in that work. The next work, down the bottom, page 73, is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and we share that too. That is a difficult one. But if you turn to Romans chapter 6, it's an unavoidable one. So if you'll turn there, Romans chapter 6 is where it's taught. But before we get to Romans chapter 6, we have to go through Romans chapter 5. Because Romans chapter 5 gives us a, the design of the human race. That, that this thing called the human race is a strange, strange thing. The human race goes back to a federal head, Adam. And it seems very 
unfair to our ears when we first hear this, that you and I sit here in these dying bodies because Father Adam sinned. Well, you say, how can I, what right does God have to cause me to die, to put me under sentence of a physical death, because of what Adam did? So that's why in Romans chapter 5 it says, as by one man sent into the world, the evidence that Paul uses in that logical structure is that everybody dies and there has to be a cause of death. And the cause of death has to be universal and it's not due to personal sin. So, what is it due to? It's due to Adam's sin imputed to our account. And you say, well, that's not very fair. But... Verse 14 tells us that the reason God designed the human race that way so it would share in Adam's sin was so that the human race could be redeemed by sharing in Christ's righteousness. Now, that's the pre that, all that Romans 5 argument precedes Romans 6. And Romans 6, now we get into the historic death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you start Romans chapter 6... You'll notice in verses 3 and 4, you have a very strange statement. This is a difficult truth. But it says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? And then it continues. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. If we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we will also be united with Him in His resurrection. Knowing this, the old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with. Henceforth, we should not be slaves to sins, and so forth. If we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with Him. So now, just as Adam's destiny is past by virtue of the federal design of the human race, so Christ's death and resurrection is passed on to those who are in Christ. Now, to get what's going on here, let's draw another diagram. This is a variation of the diagram that I've shown you for years about the good-evil chart. When Adam died, when Adam sinned, we introduced a period of history that goes on such that it, we, we say it's mortal history or mortalized. And by, by mortalized, we mean that it's history gone awry. It is the design of Eden that now is self-destructing. And that self-destruction is universal. Every member of the human race shares this. So, not only is it mortal as it was back here in the days from creation to the fall, you also had a mortal creation in that it was subject to the possibility of death. Now, after Adam, all the way to the end, it is mortalized in the sense now we are mortal and we are dying. We're actual. It's actually mortalized. Well, now, the Lord Jesus Christ here at this point dies and he rises from the dead. Now, because we've heard the Easter story so many times, we take this for granted. 
But you, ha you, you have to be careful here. In the Jewish mind, prior to Jesus' ministry, they hadn't got a clue about any resurrection happening other than the resurrection that would happen over here. This is what they thought of when they thought of resurrection. It was something that Daniel said would happen in the end times. Not now. So when Jesus rises from the dead, the only way the Jewish mentality can interpret that is that this, and by the way, the Jewish mentality is that history here is immortal. Okay? Now what does immortal mean? Well, what is an IM prefix? Actually, in the English language, what we really have is IN plus mortal. The problem is you can't say N and M together, so your mouth messes it up, and it's immortal. So the IN prefix is the negation of the noun. So if I say mortal, and then I say immortal, then it means it's not mortal. So there's a distinctly different history here. Here, it's history subject to death. Here it was potential, here it's actual. This creation is not subject to death and will never be subject to death and can't be subject to death. That's immortal existence. So, when Jesus therefore rises from the dead over here instead of over here, we have taken a piece of immortal history that was programmed for the end times and we've moved it back into temporal history. So now, we have at least one person who is immortal who walks around in a resurrection body. No one else does. Only Jesus walks in a, a resurrected body and he now is the first fruits of this, this immortal history. Well, that's nice theory, but what does it mean? Well, Romans 6 is saying that when we are placed in Christ through, notice the instrumentality, verse 3, verse 4, is baptism. Now, it's not water baptism there. That is the Holy Spirit's baptism and goes back to why we started a couple of weeks ago by looking at positional truth from the standpoint of what the Holy Spirit does and then working backwards through the Trinity to the Son. So we move back from the Holy Spirit to the Son. What was one thing the Holy Spirit did? Well, the Holy Spirit baptized us. And what did we say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was? But it's, it's a separating. It's an identification and separation. Baptism was used to signify judgmental separation. The baptizing work of the Holy Spirit is the implementation of us joining the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, the baptism of the Spirit is linked to this in Romans chapter 6. The Holy Spirit, remember the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the order of the Trinity. The Father is the ultimate speaker, the Son is what the message spoken, and the Holy Spirit is the implementation. So the Holy Spirit, by virtue of the baptism, implements Christ's death and resurrection in some way to us. Now let's think about that. How to, what difference does it make? It doesn't make any difference physically because we're still in our dying bodies. So whatever the baptism of the Holy Spirit does, it hasn't taken care of our mortalized bodies. We're not resurrected yet. 
And yet Paul says we have been crucified with him and we are raised with him somehow. So what is happening here is that the death and resurrection, the transfer from mortal to immortal history, has happened in the realm of our spirit. So one of the other things the Holy Spirit does is he regenerates. And when he regenerates, he doesn't resurrect, though that's coming. But the, re the regeneration is the act of recreating the human spirit. And that human spirit, once it's recreated, is patterned after Jesus Christ. Now, if we go back to the, the life of Christ, this is why two or three years ago, I know we spent weeks going through this, and some of you wondered why we spent all that time. Well, now, now we're coming back to it. Remember when we went through the four great categories in the life of Christ? We went through his life. And you remember we had quite a bit of discussion about two words. Kenosis and impeccability. Kenosis was, remember what it was? Jesus gave up, not his deity, couldn't give that up. He gave up the independent use of his divine attributes. That's Philippians 2, 5 through 8. He gave up the independent use of his attributes. What's that mean? It means that when Jesus Christ was walking around in Satan's world, Satan knew what he was after. So Satan's trying to destroy Jesus. He's trying to oppose him at every point. Jesus is sitting here and he's taking fire from the enemy. What tools does Jesus use to defend himself in Satan's land? Filling of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is using, he's, as it were, like an Aberdeen Proving Ground, we do testing, and we have torture tests for tanks, and we have vehicles out there, and there's all kinds of concrete barriers. And, you know, you look at these poor truck chassis as they go over this thing, and, and the front part of the truck is going like this, and the back truck is like this. What are we trying to do? We're stressing those frames to make sure it works so when the guy's out there and somebody's firing at him, it's not going to fall apart. We don't need... That's not the time for something to fall apart. We've got enough problems with incoming enemy fire than to worry about whether the truck's going to fall apart or not. So it's tested. Well, look upon it this way. The Lord Jesus Christ, under kenosis, is testing out the filling of the Holy Spirit and proving it works. And proving it works consistently, day after day after day, in a perfect way. We also mention that impeccability is that Jesus Christ was able not to sin, but he was also not able to sin. And that created some discussion. And you remember how we resolved that. We said that the phrase, posi non pecari, able not to sin, refers to his humanity. That his humanity was able not to sin. And uh, non posi pecari means that he, in his deity, could not sin. God cannot sin. God is always righteous. What creates the dilemma for us is and we're going to come revisit this about four or five more times. So don't worry if you don't get it 
right now because we're going to run this by four or five times. It's going to keep coming up. And that's why when I was back here, I covered that. Because you can't get away from it because when you start dealing with these things, it keeps rising to the surface on you all the time. The problem is people have a hard time, we all have a hard time, visualizing how Jesus can be impeccable and temptable. If he is temptable and the temptation is genuine, how can you say he cannot sin? Doesn't that make it appear as though the temptations that Jesus faced are different than the temptations that you and I face? Because we are peccable, he wasn't. So, did he have an easier time? And the answer is, no, he had a worse time. Because he was impeccable, he couldn't, he couldn't fail, he took the full heat. We collapse before it gets very, the, the pressure gets too high. But Jesus had to sit there and stand there and take it. So all during this time, we have Jesus Christ generating, and every time he's doing that, by the way, see how this package it stays together. This is the salvation package. While he's doing that, he's generating this absolute righteousness that later will be credited to our account. So lots of things are happening here. But the point we want to make now is that Jesus Christ, when he died and he was raised from the dead, and we have his resurrection ahead of the general resurrection, he is now immortal. That eternal life, because that, that's what he's done now, this, this immortal is actually eternal life. That's another thing that we have from him. That eternal life is impeccable. And that's why you read, as we said in 1 John chapter 3, he who is born of God cannot sin. That is referring to the impeccability of the eternal life. It's not talking about he doesn't sin a lot. It means he can't sin. Now you say, well, wait a minute. We all sin. That's right. But if you read John, he qualifies that up a few verses when he says, those who abide in Christ... And those who are abiding Christ are in fellowship. And that, at that point, which we, doesn't last with us more than five or ten minutes sometimes, at that point, that eternal life is manifested. And that eternal life is what is perfect. It's Jesus Christ's life. It's not ours. It's Jesus Christ's life. We can't take credit for it. So, we get that. That's all part of this package that comes in with sharing the death and resurrection of Christ. It's just another way of expressing the fact of eternal life, which gets us now to the next thing in our state. And last week we covered that. If you look on the bottom of page 75 of the notes, and before we get to... Right. But I mean, is there anything that clearly states that we will live forever with God? I guess I'm saying, I understand that, you know, that his eternal nature 
it's different because he had no beginning. Right. But there's something that clearly states, even though we had a beginning, um, once we became children of, of you know, once we became believers in Christ, that we now will live, we will have no end. Uh, the, the question concerns whether there's a clear statement about eternal life continuing, uh, w- whether we're stating that we will live forever in God's presence. It's a, it's a concept that's developed two ways. In the Old Testament, God promised certain things to for example, Abraham. And he promised that Abraham would uh, have him, Jehovah, as his God. Now, this is before any talk of resurrection happened in the progress, because the resurrection, the the actual specific doctrine of the resurrection, really doesn't appear until the exilic times in the progress of Revelation. Yet, the strange thing is, that in, I think, Matthew 22, when Jesus speaks about the resurrection, he draws on Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. Now, you read that passage where Jesus is teaching about the resurrection, you swear that where is he coming from until you start reasoning it out. And in that logic that Jesus used, his logic was this that we are forever to dwell in the presence of God bodily is all implied in the Abrahamic covenant. Now, how is it implied in the Abrahamic covenant? Because, Jesus says, God identified himself as the God of, uh, who, was the, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. didn't say, I was the God of Abraham as though Abraham passed out of existence. But God, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as a present thing. Now, that's a sophistication, frankly, I would have lost going through the Abrahamic covenant. I don't think I would be alert enough to pick that out of the text. But the Lord Jesus did. And after he picks it out and he shows it to us, then we say, oh, okay, I kind of see the logic there. So the first part of my answer is that the idea of us living forever in the presence of God appears to be implicit from the very start of Scripture. But it doesn't become, it isn't clear to us until someone points it out. Then you come forward in time and you pick up, beginning with the prophets of the Old Testament, the fact that now there will be a time in the future when all sin is done away with and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Now that's not clear, the millennial kingdom and eternal state are not clearly distinguished at that point. They're kind of thrown together. And then you go forward some more, and all of a sudden you get to Daniel, and now he's talking about people coming up out of the ground in graves. And when these specifics come up, like the Daniel passage of resurrection, they, those later passages, have to be interpreted inside the framework of the earlier passages. And the earlier passages give the reason why resurrection is going to take place. The reason is that's the only way these saints can live in God's presence. Well, you say, well, how does that imply resurrection? Because, go back to the first definition of life in the Bible. See, here's where it's a good discipline to use a concordance 
and go back to first occurrences. Every time the Holy Spirit introduces a new word or a new term, as Scripture goes forward, you want to watch it. What were the circumstances? What was the discussion? Was there a problem back there? What was the solution to the problem? What was the, what was the whole discussion about? Well, where do you encounter life first? Forgetting whether it's eternal life or just natural life. It's in Genesis 1. And the particular passage that, that we're thinking about is Genesis 2, actually, when God takes the lump of clay and he breathes into it the breaths, plural, of lies. And man became a living, there's the adjectival of life, a living nephesh, or soul. And if you stop right there and think about what has just been said, you see that there is a physical body involved and a spirit. God breathed into that body a spirit. So you have spirit and body together make life. So the logic here is that you cannot have people living in the presence of God without bodies. Because not to have a body is not to live. So those are the, uh, those are the forces that gather to finally fill out this doctrine as you advance through the, the re successive revelation. Then you get in the New Testament, it's quite clear that Paul, or it's quite clear that the disciples and Paul, not John, this is a difference, the disciples and Paul are using the word eternal life to refer to the future, not the presence. They mean by eternal life what the traditional Jew meant by eternal life, this time in the future when we will dwell in the presence of God with our bodies. John has this strange new thing where John introduces the idea that eternal life is a present thing that we possess now. And it's called the Johannine theology. Now, the liberals make a big thing out of this and say, oh, well, see, there's a conflict going on between Paul and John. They two guys couldn't get together about eternal life. Nonsense. Think about, think about the gospel stories about John and Jesus. Who was closest to Jesus? It was John. Who was the most sensitive one to the thought, the deeper thoughts of Jesus. Frankly, it's John. And remember, the test of this is that if you read John chapter 3, that chapter starts out with Jesus talking to Nicodemus, and I dare you to find out where by the end of that, it's John talking, the author of the text. Now, where does the transition in chapter 3? can't find it. It's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, this is an old thing that people pointed to. And what the inference is that John was very young when he was a disciple. He was a teenager, frankly, an older teenager, probably a young businessman. And he was so impressed with Jesus that he, Jesus' vocabulary became John's vocabulary. Jesus was so much his hero that John's gospel, probably more than the other gospels who were written by men when they were older, John, um, I mean, John wrote later too, but I'm talking about his insights. 
John the Apostle appears to have perfectly mimicked, perfectly grasped the deeper things of Jesus with regard to the church age. Another example of this. In John 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, it's all stuff that the other guys don't report on. It's that intimate moment prior to the going to the cross that Jesus began to share in the upper room the details of what was going to happen after, that after the cross. And what he was in essence doing, he was teaching about the whole church age in John 14, 15, 16, 17. And, so, and, and, and John's the one that records the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Who else does that? Matthew doesn't. Mark doesn't. Luke doesn't. Only John does. So here's the guy who is closest to Jesus, the guy who makes it his point in his writings to record Jesus' special instructions about the church yet to be created. And this is the man who says eternal life is now present. Not just in the future, but now. The problem is, and what makes it difficult is that the classic definition of life is spirit and body, is a soul. So in what sense do we have eternal life now when we have a dying body? John apparently is viewing with anticipation that the spiritual part of the life has come. That's the, the Nicodemus discourse. You know, the wind blows where it wills and you hear the sound thereof, but you do not know where it goes. See, that's the spirit. And John is apparently saying that through regeneration and the indwelling and all that work of the Holy Spirit, he has brought eternal life to our spirits. And that eternal life is a piece or a chunk off the future, brought into the present. Oh, yeah. John defines eternal life in John 17, 3. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he, what does Jesus say? He says, this is life eternal, that you may know, not just know the Father, but Him who has been sent. So the eternal life is Christ's life shared, broken out. No, but it, yeah, but it's not time in the sense it's broken off and brought here, but it's not going to be different. See, that, the picture here is that what we have now as eternal life isn't going to go away and be something different in the future, but rather, of course, it'll be expanded. But what we now possess is something that's a treasure from the eternal future brought forward in time to be experienced now. That's the shocking revelation of the Apostle John over against the other guys. And the other guys were led by the Holy Spirit to emphasize other parts of revelation. 
And one of the things they do emphasize, as in 1 Corinthians, when Paul deals with eternal life, there's a whole chunk of text in 1 Corinthians 15 that deals with the resurrection body. That's where the resurrection body comes in. So we pick up the body in order to live. In fact, the, the end of that 1 Corinthians 15 is what pastors use at funerals. The very end, where is thy victory? And it picked up, uh, the immort immort mortality is picked up, immortality, so forth, so forth, so on. So all of this, to get back to Debbie's question, is it's not so much that you have the specific words saying we will dwell in, in the presence of God, although Revelation 22 shows that. Um, it's, it's rather, it's part and parcel of the whole grand scheme of things all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures. That there's no such thing as real human life lived apart from the presence of God. So then what makes that different from God's eternal nature? I guess, you know, you know once we are in that body that is going to be able to live in the presence of God for eternity, um, different than God's eternity, I guess, or eternal nature. Because you can't split an attribute off from God and share it with someone else. All of his attributes are united together, so you can't... He is eternally existing so that eternal life is a, is a thing of the creature. If you think of the creator-creature distinction, his eternality is part and parcel of the creator and was there before the creation. So eternality is not a created entity. It's the essence of God. Eternal life, however, is all the creature. It's eternal life of the creature. Eternal life never existed. In fact, you could say the eternal life never existed until the incarnation. The Old Testament saints are never said to have eternal life as a present entity. They were scheduled, so to speak, to get it, but they are never said to have eternal life. That is a feature that starts with Jesus and in the Incarnation. So, it, it's like uh, anything else. It would be like, what is the difference between divine God's sovereignty and human choice? There is a similarity, but woe, you know... on page 77. Follow me through the last half of that middle paragraph where I say, unlike the ritual, Jesus' atonement on the cross was the real thing that happened in a moment of history and was finished. Jesus does not re-offer himself eternally before the Father. That is where Protestant and Catholic theology cannot agree. Jesus does not reoffer him eternally before the Father. You see, you see why there's a, a clash here between Protestant communion and Roman Catholic Mass? There's two theological things going on in these two ceremonies. These two ceremonies, folks, they may use bread and wine, and the Protestants may use bread and wine, but there's a whole different thing going on. And you have to be aware of that. 16th century Europe was rent in half by the arguments over the Eucharist. We are considered by Catholics to almost be blasphemous in what they consider to be a very careless, 
uh, unsensitive, unspiritual uh, denigration of the Holy Sacred Mass. Well, if I was a Catholic and I was believing the Mass was the body of Jesus and it was actually being done every Sunday, I would think that too, if that's what you believed. Except I don't believe that. And I don't believe that because that's what I don't see that in the Bible. That's a church tradition. But it's not taught in the Scripture. Jesus does not reoffer himself eternally before the Father. What he does do, and here's the positive side, we've been negative up to this point, what he doesn't do, now here's what he does do. He presents the results of his once for all sacrifice throughout the age of grace until history ends. As we study in part 5, Christ's atonement is the basis of all grace whatsoever the Father extends to fallen mankind. During the age of grace, the Father postpones judgment and does so on what basis? So here's where, here's where you, you take post-biblical Judaism and Islam and they both are making a profound mistake here. Because what they're saying is that somehow God is in, his, in this infinite, unknowable character of His, He can be merciful without blood atonement. Well, now, how do you protect the sovereignty, the absolute sovereignty of God, when He arbitrarily takes good works and bad works and He balances and says, okay, you got it, you didn't, you got it, you didn't. He's arbitrarily, at every point here, He's accepting sins. Right? If I'm a sinner and I've committed 4,000 sins and I've got 5,000 good works and 4,000 bad works, I've got a net gain of plus 1,000. So he opens the door for me. But what about the 4,000? They don't go away. What happens to those 4,000 sins? They have no answer. And what in effect happens is that they denigrate the real holiness of God. As much as they like to talk about God being great and holy and all the rest of it, no. They have compromised and eroded the holiness of God by substituting a work system. And every work system makes God have to accept unrighteous works. And you know what Isaiah 64, 6 says about unrighteous works. Okay. During the age of grace, the Father postpones judgment and does so on the basis of Christ's atonement. As priest, therefore, Jesus represents all mankind covered from final judgment until the end. In other words, He covers for all mankind until the day of grace ends. And then the priestly intercession stops. The priestly intercession of Jesus is not going to continue for all men. It's, it's, it's going on, it's like a shield against high voltage. You know, here's this big high voltage machine, and the intercession of Christ stops, stops it. It's, it's held back, it's held back, it's held back, it's held back, until the end of history. It's, okay, let it go. Boom. But the intercession for the saved goes through the final judgment. So it's a different kind of intercession. Now we want to get a picture. Since we talk now, we focus now on this priestly intercession. That we want to go to Romans 8.34 and then we're going to go to pick up some pictures of what Jesus' intercession is doing for us, for you, for me, tonight. Let's turn to Romans 8. Here's the central New Testament passage on intercession. 8.34 so we said that the priesthood of Jesus primarily 
is concerned with intercession for us. Now, you remember something here. What do we say the Holy Spirit was doing? Interceding, right? But you remember I said, uh, watch it. Remember we said when we got into that intercession of the Holy Spirit, I said, is something peculiar about that text? The text doesn't have the Holy Spirit praying to the Father. The Holy Spirit is praying to the Son. Because the one who shines the rains in the kidneys, according to the book of Revelation, is the Son. So, that being the case, this intercession is not the same as this intercession. Two different intercessions going on with two different purposes. See how complicated the salvation package is? Yeah, we'll be studying it for all eternity. There's so much glory of God in the salvation package that we will have all eternity to try to understand what He has done for us. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, here's what Paul says. Who is he that condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died, who was raised, who, at the Father, who is at the right hand, who also, past tense now or present tense? Present tense, right? The intercession is happening still now. But the sacrifice is past tense. So, it's once for all sacrifice, but continuing intercession. Now, let's see what the intercession looks like. There's a picture, two pictures I want to take. We don't have much time left, but uh, one way, one of them you can remember. We've been through this. I'm sure you all have read this. Job chapter 1, Satan comes into the council of God and says, get, let's get Job. Let's go ahead and get Job. And God talks to Satan and so on and says, do this, but don't do this. He kind of shields Job. He says, okay, Satan, you've got a little bit of deal, but you can't take them all. Well, we've got another better picture. It's in Zechariah chapter 3. So you turn to the Old Testament, toward the end of it, toward the New Testament. It's part of the Bible we never read, so it's hard to open. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 5, verses 1 to 5. Here's a picture of what intercession looks like, the kind of intercession that Jesus does. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. What does Satan do? Accuse the brethren. And... Although he can accuse us to our mind, the real accusations of Satan we don't even hear. They're being done in heaven. Satan stands at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. This is, by the way, the Trinity passage. Notice second and, third, second and first persons here. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joseph, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. In the Hebrew language, that isn't filthy garments. That's manure-covered garments. So it's a nice picture of filth. And the idea is that jo Joshua is a priest and he is a sinner. And he has manure all over his clothes. And that's how, he pictured, that's how God pictures sin. Dirty, stinking mess. See, Hebrew is it's so fun to get in the original languages. Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. 
And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, said, take the filthy garments from him. See, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you in festal robes. And let him put a clean turban on his head. That's the picture that, that the, 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 the Satan comes, he accuses, and we are covered. And we are covered by the priest who has the right to make intercession for us with a perfect sacrifice because he's the one that made the sacrifice. That's why Jesus does the interceding, not the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is not, this, this is intercession, is not the Holy Spirit's intercession. This is the Son's intercession because the Son is God, man is the sacrifice. He can make this intercession. Now, practical example that he did this actually in a, probably for all eternity as the angel of the Lord, but during his incarnation he did this once. It's a very famous passage and we'll close with that one. Luke chapter 22. This is a picture of the continuing work of Jesus in our lives. Luke chapter 22 verse 31. This is that passage about Peter. Now let's read that in the light of a priest. Simon, Simon, behold, now who's the character getting involved here again? Same guy that we saw in Zechariah. Does this seem consistent? Who then is doing battle with Jesus over this ministry of intercession? This is the angelic conflict going on all the way up to the throne of God. And that's why in the previous chapter, remember I talked about the angelic conflict during the church age? And I said, what is happening is that Satan had a chance, he thought, to be the top dog. And he blew it. And he hated the fact that the Father sent the Son to take his place. And so he did everything he could to stop Jesus Christ. And if he couldn't stop Jesus, he was going to kill Jesus. But he was going to get Jesus out of the way. Failed. And so what happens is that Jesus walks into the throne room, he sits down on that throne, and from that point on, there's nobody else that can sit there. At the time the Lord Jesus ascended and sat down at the Father's right hand, the game is over seat is occupied. So, therefore, what is Satan going to do? He's going to back off and he knows that in order for Jesus, who sits at the Father's right hand, to execute the final plan of history, Jesus has to have a people for his name. Remember? Daniel 7 those other passages. Because the imagery is always the king and his people. Well, we've got the king at the Father's right hand, but we don't have the people of the king at the Father's right hand. So where are the people going to come from? What is Jesus doing? Every time we trust in Jesus Christ alone for our righteousness, Jesus then can go to the Father and He says, here's my righteousness. I cover that person. Satan's over here criticizing. Filthy garments. Filthy garments. Jesus is over here in his seat and says, you don't have a legal claim. You just got your case thrown out of court. Jesus is throwing cases out of court. Case dismissed. Case dismissed. Case dismissed. Don't have a case. 
The, in other words, this angelic conflict is one that's legally based. Who has the claim? So in Luke 22, here, Jesus, here the accuser is. Here we go again. Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your strength may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, you strengthen your brother. Once you repent, strengthen your brothers. There's a little thing there. It's just a flash. It's just tiny. It only takes one verse, but it explains the whole chapter in Luke of what happened in Peter's life. Now, if that went on with the apostle, do you suppose that's going on with our lives? And someday, in eternity, we're going to be faced with, you know, I would envision we had discussion about, you know, remember the day that this happened in your life? Remember what happened over here? Remember what happened to that person? Remember this situation? You remember that circumstance? Let me show you what was going on. And all of a sudden, the curtain opens and we see this dialogue. And we say to ourselves, holy mackerel. You know, if I'd known that this was a cosmic disturbance, I think I would have handled the situation a little differently. But this gives you insight in what is going on with the constant intercession of the Lord Jesus. We'll continue next week because we've got to finish up the work of the Son for the believers. And we're going to also contrast that intercession with the intercession of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that you have provided this perfect salvation that you knew from eternity every detail with regard to our sin, with regard to the solution to the sin problem. And you designed a perfect salvation package to deal with that situation. We give you thanks as we sit in awe of all the details, of all the different things that have to be done and still have to be done in order to bring us into your presence forever. We offer you thanks through our Savior's name, our Savior's name, the Lord Jesus. Amen.